From Buck Studio at Wisconsin Public Radio, this is Zorba Pastor on your health. I'm Tom Clark, here again with Family Doc Zorba Pastor, here to talk with you about what's new in healthy living, share some down-to-earth advice, and great lifestyle tips to help you get the most out of life. If you have a question for Zorba, call us now at 1-800-462-7413. Of course, along with your calls, some topics to talk about. Yes, garlic may not only help your breath, it may help your brain. (laughs) You like that, didn't you? My breath is that bad. bad. Garlic Garlic will make it better. It's it's going to help your breath. And vitamin supplements, a new study that shows, well, they're not quite what they're worth. Mm. Not quite what they're worth. What's our recipe? We're going to do an experimental recipe that I have not made. I call it Zorba's Experimental Beef Brisket. Sometimes it's fun just sort of coming up with a recipe that may be something that's fun to make. I know how much you love to be in the kitchen, I'm I'm trying to get my mind around this. I can't say how good is this, Zorba, because you you don't know. That's right. I don't know. But I can imagine how good it is. And we're going to talk about how we actually take a recipe and make it better. So, mm-hmm. so the phones will go now, Zorba, 1-800-462-7413. That's 800-462-7413. Our first caller joins in now from Knoxville, Tennessee. Hi. Hi. Thanks for taking the call. Yeah, how can we help? Well, I was listening to you two just a short couple of weeks ago and had a caller on with a 13-year-old son with autism. Mm-hmm. And he met, he had mentioned the bracelets. Mm-hmm. And I also have a 13-year-old son with autism. Uh-huh. And he and I are about to uh, go on a cruise in June. Oh, Okay. So you're concerned that he might be a little nauseous. Is that that's what you're concerned about? And not so much nauseous, but uh, more along the lines of his hyperactivity. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about your son. He's 13 years old. What do you normally do with him when you travel? Well, uh, this is going to be our first major excursion. Uh-huh. Okay. And we are going to the Bahamas. Ooh, sounds wonderful. Has he ever been on an airplane before? Never. I've got him sought for this trip, Mm -hmm. and everybody around me is concerned with his reaction to large crowds. Uh He used to be deathly afraid of the Walmart stores, Uh any any place with high ceilings. With high ceilings, okay. And and people. I mean, Walmart has people moving around. It's noisy. What does he do now? Is he able to go into stores like that? Now he is perfectly fine with it. Got it. Uh, what happened was uh, several years ago when he was in elementary school, mm-hmm. uh, they had to do some repairs on the gym roof, and mm-hmm. he thought that the roof was coming in on him. Oh, got it. Yeah. 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 Well, I can understand how you could have preferred like that. Well, the particular bracelet, I don't remember what, exactly the person was talking about. But I think one of the issues you want to face with your child, great idea, is some of the challenges that you go in head on so that it can be useful. So number one, he can go in, there are going to be crowds on your cruise boat. So what you want to do is before your cruise, quite on a regular basis, you want to go into crowded situations with him and make him comfortable with that. So you want to go to different stores on a regular basis with him so he's used to going to novel places that have people in it that are doing different things and are a little chaotic. That's that's number one. How is he with sounds? Is he bothered by sound? Not anymore. He he. Uh, I used to bring home my air tools, mm-hmm. and he was really bothered by the sounds then. But he's more or less okay with that now. One of the things you may want to do also with him is you can go uh, to Amazon.com, and you can get earmuffs. They are basically they're about fifteen bucks, and they look like earphones, but they actually block out all sound. Some 
kids with autism like that because it de- they get rid of the sound, the loud sound, because the sound bothers them. It doesn't sound like your, your son is bothered by that, but you may want to try that or you may want to try getting other things that you plug into the ears, but I like the earmuffs, the earmuffs better. They're called hearing muffs because they stop the sound and immediately you feel like you're in your own world because they shut mm-hmm. off the outside sound. And part of the chaos of the airport and the airplane is the sound. Those are kind of the things that I would look at. But I I think just getting him used to crowds, looking from a sound point of view of whether or not he doesn't like loud sounds, but getting him used to being in sort of semi-chaotic situations would help. The other thing is, have you gone to the airport in Knoxville with him? No. Go to the no, airport. Go to the airport, walk around so he's comfortable going to the airport. And you may even want to watch the airplanes come and go. Outside the airport, this is what an airplane looks like. This is how loud it is. This is how noisy it is. Once again, with with kids and with young adults with autism, it's getting used to it so that they know how to basically be in control of that situation. So it's a matter of doing that. I definitely would go to the airport. Those are my those are my tips. Okay. Well, I will say that I am a high functioning autistic. Oh. I mean, so, super high apparently because I've been working my fanny off all my life <laughs> just to prove to myself and everyone around me that I can be a productive member of society. And I have learned that my son is a functional autistic mm-hmm. and it's just a matter of how he's going to react with the big crowds, and that was my main concern. And I was uh, hoping that those wristbands that the other fellow was talking about might have been uh, some sort of an option for my son. No, I think the training of actually going into those situations, and you know it as a high-functioning person with autism, that it's a matter of getting used to the environments and then knowing that you have control over that environment. I think that's where the biggest bang for your buck is with your son. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, you've done an amazing job with your life. Like you said, you've worked your fanny off and uh, suffering from autism and doing that, you certainly can relate to your son then. That's, that's yes. wonderful. Well, Dr. Zorba, Tom, both, I, I love listening to you all and I appreciate everything that you have done throughout the years and I appreciate the information today. You all have a great program, and I'm going to get out of here and get back to work. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. So nice. We really appreciate that call. 800-462-7413. If you have a question for Zorba, a line is open for you now. 800-462-7413. But Zorba, before our next call, garlic and memory. Yes. Now, let's not forget what Julia Child once said. I mean, I'm sure that this is right in the top of your lips. I can't imagine life without garlic. I mean, that's what she said. I can't imagine life without garlic. Obviously, and that was Julia Child. Come on. I mean, she's the gold standard of, you know, of, of PBS and cooking back, mm-hmm. back in the day. Uh, but here's a very interesting Article. Now, I have to tell you where the article came from because when we look at research, we also have to evaluate where it's published. When we have things published like in the New England Journal of Medicine, you know, it has, it has a lot of meaning. When we have things published in the Lancet and JAMA. And this is an article that came from Cooking Light. Mm-hmm. Now, Cooking Light magazine is not exactly <laughs> a referee journal. Yeah. But nonetheless, you can have good information in Cooking Light because mm-hmm. they get the information mm-hmm. from other places. And what they did, this, had to, this is information that actually came and it, from the University of Louisville. And it had to do with mice, garlic and mice. Now, I don't know if you know, but mice like food. <laughs> okay. They don't really care what the food is like. There's some food they like more than others. When we have mice and we have mice in our basement, we've had mice in our basement for 40 years in our mm-hmm. house. I generally don't put garlic down there to get the mice. I put peanut butter. Nonetheless, they looked at mice that were fed garlic, okay? okay, and they compared how they did with mice who did not feed garlic. Well, they did what? Now, <laughs> mice don't do anything. <laughs> how could they tell whether the memory was they, good or not? They didn't do. They didn't do an interview with the mice, <laughs> but they put them in. They put them in mazes, mouse mazes. Oh, and they, they could mouse. do better in that, the maze. Yeah, that's right. And and then they they took two year old mice. Now, two years old for the mice. 
is like seven-year-olds who are human. Okay. In other words, they don't really live that long. If they make it to two, they're kind of – first off, they make it to two, they're pretty smart in okay. the wild, okay. right? Because a lot of other animals like mice. I don't mm-hmm. know if you know, but they're – we have owls around our house and they tend to eat mice. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, let's go back to the mice. So they're two-year-old mice, which are comparable to 70-year-old humans, and they were fed garlic and they did better in a maze. So mm-hmm. what does that mean? It means that garlic helps memory. And for mice in mazes. So the real question is, will it help us yeah. if we're not? Now, we sometimes go through mazes that are mental mazes, right? I mean, they're not, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know about you, but I know how to get in and out of Wisconsin Public Radio Building. Pretty good. I mean, I can get, mm-hmm. get out efficiently. But we go through other mazes. So the question is, and I think it's actually a, a very interesting question, will this help people who are older? In other words, because people are older, have a different bacterial biome. The more and more we know about our gut, the more we understand that it's not just poop (laughs) that's in our gut. That actually, that different bacteria do different things. Mm -hmm. And so the theory is that maybe garlic will change, changes the internal sort of characteristics in a mouse's gut. And maybe we can say that it'll make a difference in human's gut. Now, one of the reasons that this may be important is as you get older, you tend to eat A, less food and B, less of a variety of food. And among other reasons is that your sense of smell tends to depreciate just like your, you know, just like your eyes and your ears, you mm-hmm. know, just as you get older. And as your sense of smell depreciates, people start eating very, very – they start eating not as many foods and not as many tastes. So older people like things that are sweet because we taste it with our tongue, mm-hmm. things that are exceptionally cold like ice cream because mm-hmm. the texture fills good and they, all of a sudden it gives a burst to the brain. And they don't tend to eat things that are spicy and filled with garlic. Mm. So it might be that that's good for the brain. But we actually have in mother nature and in humans, we have a way to actually test this. The real question is, do Italians who live in Italy and Sicily have less dementia than old folks in America because mm. they eat garlic all the time? That study is not published in Cooking Light. So I don't think we have the answer to that. One day, what's that phone number? <laughs> One eight hundred four six two seven four one three. I got it. I never say it. You don't need any garlic. I do. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get back to the phones. Our next caller, Zorba, is a listener in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi. Hi. How are you, Zorba and Tom? Yeah. How can we help? My question is: um, I recently had cataract surgery. And I had also taken for a short period of time uh, Tamsulosin mm-hmm. or Flomax. Mm-hmm. And I found out afterwards that it causes a syndrome called interoperative floppy iris syndrome, which huh? which happens even if you take the drug for a very short period of time, and it causes your iris to not respond to light the way it's supposed to, and it also causes it to kind of flop, I guess, uh-huh. what they say, um, when they're doing the surgery, which makes surgery extremely difficult for a cataract surgeon. Uh-huh. And this happens in in a lot of cases, and it's, it's pretty well documented. And what my concern is, is why aren't doctors telling people that this is a possible side effect? Because the very same people that are going to be taking the drug, which are probably in their 50s, 70s, are also the same people that are going to be having cataract surgery. And it seems like informed consent would be a a very important thing to tell people because Mm -hmm. I had to be on uh, a dilator for Mm -hmm. two weeks before, which essentially Mm -hmm. made me blind for Mm -hmm. two weeks before the surgery. Uh And then the surgery went well? The surgery Mm -hmm. had some complications, Mm -hmm. although it seems like things are are going well now. Uh But um, if I had known, I I never would have taken it. Well, first of all, you bring up a good point about you know, informed consent. So go to the, you know, you go to the pharmacy and then you get a printout that tells you about the drug and then tells you all the potential side effects. Who reads it? (laughs) In other words, who looks at it? But then you have side effects that are greater than 10%. You have side effects that are greater than 5%. And then you have side effects that are less than 5%. 
And so there are a number of drugs, pretty much I would say almost any drug that you get in a pharmacy, where you have the side effect, it might be 1 in 100, 1 in 1,000, 1 in 10,000. And so, you know, you then, the question is, what do you inform and what don't you inform? And then how much time do you spend looking at, well, this may happen, this may occur, that may occur. Uh, all the side effects can blur together. If you look at tamsulosin, it's a very good drug for BPH. There are a lot of people who don't need surgery because they take it. There are a lot of people mm-hmm. who never need cataract surgery. And if you have a side effect from this floppy iris, which, by the way, I'm not familiar with. I haven't heard of it, so I have to do some research on it. But if you have a side effect that might occur one in a 1,000, then what do you do with the other 999 who may not have the side effect or even know that they have the side effect because they, have, they haven't had surgery? Or if you're going to a cataract surgeon, an eye surgeon, and they go, have you ever taken tamsulosin? You might have floppy eye syndrome. I'm going to have to give these drops that dilate your eyes. You're not going to be able to do much for two weeks because of the drops. You might say, okay, the tamsulosin allowed me to urinate without needing surgery on my prostate. So in other Mm -hmm. words, you might say, gee, that looks fine to me. The other thing that we don't know is interactions between drugs. We know some drugs interact, but once you get to three drugs together or four drugs together, it's sort of like the permutation of three and four. The interactions are really not well known. You know, we just know the gross interactions. So you bring up a good point. You had your surgery. It sounds like they were able to obviate it by dilating your eye for two weeks. Yeah, and they also have these hooks that they (laughs) they can stick in to keep your iris from flopping. Mm -hmm. The other thing about it, though, is it does diminish your pupil's ability to dilate at night. Mm -hmm pretty much on a permanent basis. Uh-huh. You've obviously done research. Is the risk 1 in 1,000, 1 in 10,000, or 1 in 100? It seemed like it was up around 10%, yeah. uh-huh. which, which is pretty high. Once again, I'm not familiar with it, so uh, I don't know what the, what the number is and when it affects people. But you bring yeah. up a very good point about side effects of medication. That's really a very, very major issue. But the other side is the drug is extremely effective, so a lot sure. of men don't need surgery. You have to decide, right. what am I going to do? Right. And for me, the drug didn't, didn't work. So It didn't work, um, but the side effects were there. So the you got the double whammy. <laughs> it didn't work in the side effects. Well, thanks for sharing that. And you're right about the side effects, and that's why they hand out all that stuff at the pharmacy. But you need to right. have a Ph.D. to go through all the stuff and the side effects to know what they're yeah. really not. So thanks so much for sharing that. 800-462-7413. Before we take a quick break now, Zorba, let's fire up another edition of Disagreeing with the Doc. Disagreeing with the Doc. The following email came to us from a listener named Amy in Madison, Wisconsin. She writes, Hello, Dr. Pastor. I want to strongly object to comments you made about nutritional supplements. On a recent show, you characterized supplements as not doing any good except making your pee expensive. I appreciate the medical knowledge that you share with people, but I object to this incorrect characterization of supplements. Personally, I've received tremendous help from nutritionists, nutritional supplements, and acupuncture. They are my main treatment for my health issues. When I have to cut back because these treatments cost money and are not covered by insurance, my suffering increases quickly and greatly. The pharmaceutical industry is a much worse example of capitalist exploitation (laughs) than the supplement industry. Thank you for reading this and considering my opinion. Well, first of all, I'll stay away from the capitalist-communist controversy versus which is more capitalist. Supplement industry is a huge industry. I think it's like $20 billion a year mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, and supplements uh, are not regulated very well by the FDA for purity. So a lot of times people who are taking supplements don't actually get anything in the supplement. I'm not against all supplements. We actually were discussing some very specific things, and it was vitamins. It was multivitamins. Mm-hmm. And Americans, I said, have the most expensive urine 
urine in the world. I didn't use the word pee. Sorry, Mom. I know you'd be upset if I said the word pee. But I used the word urine. But it is true. And so here we have a good example of someone whose health is helped by supplements Mm -hmm. but is spending a ton of money, obviously, a lot of money on supplements. Well, then the question is, are the supplements really working or is it the placebo effect? This is a very important question to answer because there are people that spend 25 to $100 a month, often that they don't have, buying supplements that may be, number one, impure because mm-hmm. they're actually not mm-hmm. good. They have a pretty label, but they don't have much in it. I like to go to consumerlab.com because they test the supplements if you're going to get a supplement. Mm-hmm. Or number two, they've never actually experimented to see if it works. On for two weeks, off for two weeks, on for two weeks, off for two weeks, on for two, off for two. I recommend anyone who does a supplement tries taking it and stopping yeah. it, taking it supplement and see if it makes a difference. Yeah, um, but I think she brings up an important point. Do you disagree with Zorba? Let us know by posting on our Facebook page or by sending us an email at Zorba at WPR.org. Zorba's tasty brisket recipe is coming up, along with more of your calls, of course, right here on Zorba Pastor on Your Health from PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. with Family Doc Zorba Pastor here on Zorba Pastor on your health. 800-462-7413 is the number. A line is open for you now at 1-800-462-7413. But Zorba, before our next call, Zorba's Experimental Beef Brisket. That's, that's right. Now, why do you think I call it experimental? Um, because... It's experimental. <laughs> That's right. Because it's, you've only done it a time or two? No, I actually have never made this recipe. Oh, okay. I've never made this recipe. This recipe is just an example of what I like to do. I look on the net and then I go, hey, I'm going to try something like this, see mm-hmm. if it works. And so you're gonna, we're going to walk through what I do when I look at recipes on the net and then how I change them and try to make them better. Okay. It's kind of I just thought that would be a fun oh, yeah. fun thing yeah. to do. So Good I've never idea. actually made this, but it's sort of a way I think about food. Because okay. I love food. Uh it's not that my mother was a great cook. She wasn't. God bless her, may she rest in peace. Mm-hmm. She had about ten dishes. Well, how about your mom? Did your mom cook at all? No, not really. She didn't have time. She was a working she was mom. Working. Well, my mom worked at Weebolts. Yeah. I mean she worked I mean, she, she how, had what do you call it? A not a pressure cooker, a I guess maybe it wasn't. <laughs> they didn't have no, slow cookers. Yeah, but okay. She had a slow cooker? They had slow cookers. Yeah. yeah no, they didn't yeah, have slow cookers yeah, when you yeah. – Did they have electricity when you were a kid? <laughs> <laughs> but my, my or did mom, your mother cook on a wooden stove? She cooked and uh, she cooked the basics, meat, vegetable, potatoes. Okay. So yeah. we're going to start out. This is an experimental beef brisket. So get a four-pound beef brisket. A four-pound beef brisket. That's right. So uh, there's there are two kinds of beef brisket, basically. There's the top cut. I think it's called the top, the point cut and the top cut. I can't remember exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. But um, I generally go for the cheaper one because the cheaper one actually has more fat. And that really is good for brisket. Oh. Brisket, by the way, is really good if you make it a day or two or three days before you're going to actually eat it because the collagen in it breaks down and it becomes tastier and tastier yes. and tastier. Mm-hmm. Okay. Garlic. Okay. As much garlic as you desire. Now, I love garlic. Do you love garlic? Yeah, I like garlic. I love it. And so I go to uh, big stores like Costco and I buy garlic that comes pre-peeled and it's in a container. And I would take one or two handfuls of garlic and use that in this recipe. Mm. Use a ton of garlic because garlic covers all of your mistakes. <laughs> in other words, if you have any mistake, garlic will cover the mistake. Okay. That really is really good. And it adds a tremendous amount. Okay. Um, a 15-ounce can of whole berry cranberry sauce. 15 ounce can whole berry cranberry sauce. So we're going to add some sweetness to this. We're going to add cranberry sauce to this. Okay. Yeah, I like it. 
Yeah, so you add cranberry salts to it. Mm-hmm. Then you take a package, a 15-ounce package of apricots, dried apricots, and you're going to cut them into little quarters. You're going to use that too, okay? A packet of... Dried apricots. You okay. know this little orange? You know, the, you know what dried apricots... Do you know what dried apricots no, look like? No, I don't like? have a clue. Well, you know what apricots look yeah, like? Yeah, Orangey. Well, dried apricots are small. They're used in Middle Eastern cooking. Mm-hmm. And they add uh, a texture to it, but they add a flavor to it. So mm-hmm. basically using cranberry sauce, we're using apricots. Got it. Okay. Uh, a packet of Lipton's dry onion soup mix. A packet of... Why do you have to have the same brand? Well, because do not get generic. The generic doesn't taste very good. So I use only Lipton's dry onion soup mix. Did you, didn't you ever make a sour cream and Lipton soup mix to make a dip? Did I ever? Yeah, that's right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm asking the wrong person. What kind of question opposite. is that? that? I take it back. I take it back. Okay. So two packets. Two packets to be a Oh, okay. Room. All right. Then you're going to use some water. Okay. Okay. You can use salt and pepper, of course, for seasoning. Okay. So first of all, the brisket. The first thing you want to do with brisket is you want to actually braise it on both sides. This is very difficult if you've got a four-pound brisket. You need a big pan. So you take a big pan, put a little olive oil in the pan, just Mm -hmm. enough to actually do it. Put it under high heat. Put the brisket on and then high heat for about five to ten minutes until it's sort of almost charred. And then turn the whole thing over very, very carefully to make sure that you don't injure yourself and braise it on the other side. It's a very important thing because it locks in the flavor of the brisket. Mm -hmm. Now you use the brisket in the pan. You then put the dry soup mix, two, two, uh, two packages of the dry soup mix on the top. Then you put the cranberry sauce on the top, the apricots on top, and put some water on top of it to sort of halfway cover the brisket. And then cook it under very slow heat, either under the, on the stove, as slow as you can make it, mm-hmm. get it to boil on the stove and simmer it, or put it in the oven at 350 degrees and just leave it in the oven for about three to four hours. Okay, That's step number one. Okay. Step number two is you bring it out and cool it and take it and let it cool. Give it a good maybe one hour to cool and slice it very carefully into thin strips. Then you put it back in the pan Hmm. and then you cook it for another hour after it's sliced. And you put the sauce over it over and over again. You're basically basing it with the sauce. So the sauce then gets into that inner part of the brisket. Hmm. It's very important. Then, we're not done yet. Yeah, okay. I know I know you're excited about this recipe. And it actually really tastes good. Then, put it in the refrigerator. Put a little foil on top of it mm-hmm. and put it in a container. You can put it in the same roasting pan that you've used all along or the same pot that you've used. Put it in the refrigerator overnight. Take the fat off the top the next day and then cook it again for an hour one more time. You're done then. And either eat it that day or no. the next day, and you will have a delicious tasting. Now, the, the reason I'm trying to jump in here, it sounds like you really love this recipe. It sounds good to you. Yeah, I love brisket. I love brisket. Well, would love you would you make this and then yes. let, it, let us know I am how going you to like make it. this recipe, and I'm going to let you know, because maybe this will become your signature recipe at home. <laughs> <laughs> you liked that, didn't you? 800 <laughs> Go to the number. Let's I, finish I that conversation. The number. 800-462-7413. And everyone knows if they want a copy of the recipe, obviously it's Facebook or ZorbaPastor.org. Let's see now if we can help another listener. Zorba, a listener with us in Westwood, New Jersey. Hi. Hi. How can we help? Uh, hi, Dr. Zorba. I am a 55-year-old, very active female. I exercise every day. I do yoga and weight-bearing exercises using 10-pound dumbbells. I also do... Uh, lots of heavy-duty gardening. Mm-hmm. Uh, this past December, I started to have trouble bending my right thumb. Mm-hmm. I had been cutting uh, some Christmas tree branches, and I was decorating some flower boxes. And so I did some research online, and it sounded like trigger thumb. Mm-hmm. So I tried the suggestions, which were to uh, use a, a, some type of bra- thumb brace to immobilize the thumb. Mm-hmm. I also tried... Um, uh, B6 supplements. Another mm-hmm. website had mentioned that. Um, neither of those home remedies worked. Uh-huh. So uh, I talked to a few people. They're like, why don't you go see an orthopedic? So uh-huh. I did. Mm-hmm. And uh, she gave me a cortisone injection, which mm-hmm. did work. Mm-hmm. Um, it only took about a week, but unfortunately, and that was in January. Unfortunately, late March, the trigger thumb came back. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, 
So I went back to read the medical notes from that first appointment. I always like to, to do that if I can. Uh-huh. Uh, and I read that she had put that I have positive phalens bilaterally. Uh-huh. P-H-A-L-E-N-S. Uh-huh. Yes. Mm-hmm. And tender to palpation mm-hmm. at the A1 pulley of the right thumb with uh-huh. active triggering. Mm-hmm. Under the assessment, she mm-hmm. wrote right trigger thumb mm-hmm. and carpal tunnel syndrome, uh-huh. upper right limb, and uh-huh. left her and uh-huh. left upper limb. Uh-huh. That sort of surprised me because I didn't think I had carpal tunnel. Well, you may, you, you may not have carpal tunnel. You know, the only way you know for sure is by an EMG. But uh, in her evaluation, she put down you have this positive sign, which is sort of a sign that may be carpal tunnel, sort of a screening test. But it's not as accurate as an EMG. And if you don't have the symptoms of carpal tunnel, you don't have carpal tunnel. You just have a positive Phelan sign. That's all it is. But it doesn't mean okay. you have carpal tunnel. You have to have the symptoms of carpal tunnel to actually have it. Well, I do. I want to mention uh, prior to that, I do remember sometimes waking up and having like numb numbness mm-hmm. and tingling in oh. my hands. Well, then but, maybe you do. But but it always went away. Yeah, so I didn't well, think it was a, a problem. Does, it doesn't. It isn't a problem, and it doesn't mean you have surgery. So I have carpal tunnel syndrome in both wrists. Okay, years ago more than 15 years ago, I had surgery on my right wrist because it was waking me up and all the pain went away in my left wrist. (laughs) But on EMG, I still have carpal tunnel. So electronically, I have carpal tunnel, but I have no symptoms at all. So Mm. why is that? Probably because I sleep differently and maybe I was sleeping on that hand. But I know one day it may become symptomatic, but it hasn't become symptomatic in 15 years. So just because you had a positive Phelan sign, which is one of the signs of carpal tunnel, it doesn't mean you have significant carpal tunnel. I think that's probably the way to put it. So I don't think I'd be concerned. But you do have trigger thumb and it came back. And it came back and it hurts, but I wasn't, I was reluctant to make an appointment yeah. to get a second injection yeah. because someone said, if you can help it, don't get a second injection. Well, you may, I'll, I'll, the, the issue with cortisone injections, I, I can speak to that. One injection you can get, and some will do two injections, but if it doesn't basically keep it after the second injection, then you should have surgery. And I just had surgery on my left ring finger because I had a trigger finger that would wake me up at night, and my trigger finger is gone. I'm still recovering from the surgery. I have a little scar that's going to take a while to heal. Uh, But it's much better than being wakened up at night. And it's the same with trigger thumb. If you're bothered by it, you may decide of a second injection. But frankly, if the first one didn't last for a year or two, I mean, I've had my trigger finger I had in the time between my first injection and second injection was four years. In other words, oh. it, really, it really was effective. And then I talked the surgeon, and I kind of cajoled the surgeon. I said, I'm just fine with the second injection. The second injection only lasted for maybe six months. And at that point, uh, I realized I'm not going to keep on getting injections because in steroid injections into the joints, into the tendons, the ligaments can actually weaken them. So you don't want to have multiple injections. So if you have one injection, didn't last very long. I'd recommend getting the surgery if you're symptomatic. But the surgery will definitely work? Or? Yeah, the surgery works. Surgery is very effective. Oh, it's okay. more it's actually more effective for trigger finger and trigger thumb than it is for carpal tunnel syndrome. And that's that's effective. You're talking about in the ninety ninety nine percent. I mean they get rid of the trigger, they get rid of the tendon, basically the ligament that's there, the tendon, and you're done. Yeah. You're talking about in the ninety five, ninety nine percent effective range. I would definitely do it. Pick a time you want to do it. Uh where you're not going to be using your hand a lot. So for me, I decided to do it after ski season because I knew I wasn't going to be able to grab a ski pole. And what's the recovery time after you do it? A week or two. It's not much of recovery. Oh, that's good. Okay. Glad to hear. Okay, that's good good news for me. (laughs) Thanks for your call. Okay, thank you so much. You're welcome. All righty, bye-bye. Bye-bye. 800-462-7413. If you have a question for Zorba... And before the break now, Zorba, let's embark on an illuminating journey through the murky waters of medical quackery. We call this segment Quacking Up with Dr. Zorba. Quacking Up with Dr. Zorba. Okay, Zorba, tell us about Dr. James Graham and his Temple of Health 
and Hyman. Oh, Hawaii. A temple of health and Hyman machine. That's exactly it. So we're talking about a wonderful thing in the 1780s in London. And in this particular, this particular quackery, uh-huh. it had a scantily clad goddess <laughs> reciting the odes to Apollo. And there was, it was next to the, quote, the largest and most elegant medical electrical apparatus in the world. And this machine was a display piece. It actually was, didn't really do anything at all. But the machine gave the element of gently providing the whole system, the obvious idea, with the goddess around, with the goddess of Apollo, that you would actually get better. It would softly flow, the electricity would softly flow into your bloodstream. And it would help couples who were copulating to have children. And they were not successful at having children with their copulation. And so he had a bed that was 12 feet long, get this, by 9 feet long, supported by 40 pillars of colored glass decorated with large crimson tassels. Perfumes were blown in by a glass tube. And, of course, you've got the scantily clad goddess who's around there. I don't know if the goddess was around there while they were copulating. My guess is she was in and out prior to the copulation, or maybe after the copulation, hard to sell, hard to actually tell. But they were guaranteed that if they copulated, that they would actually have a child. And it only cost 50 pounds back in 1780, which you can imagine was several thousand dollars a day. Despite the scantily clad goddess, despite the slayer awesomeness of the actual machine, he went bankrupt two years later. (laughs) So, once again, buyer beware. If somebody is telling you that you can increase your fertility with a scantily clad (laughs) goddess around a machine of electricity... And you're willing to copulate. uh, And you're willing to copulate (laughs) with people or in the next room and you think you're going to have children doing that. Hey, buyer beware. Buyer beware. Do you have an example... Do you have an example of medical quackery to contribute to this segment? Just send us an email at Zorba at WPR.org or remember we're on Facebook. More calls coming up. Another interesting topic to discuss and our medical Mythbusters segment. All coming up on Zorba Pastor on Your Health from PRX, the public radio exchange. Tom Clark with Family Doc Zorba Pastor here on Zorba Pastor on Your Health. Our number is 800-462-7413. But Zorba, before our next call, if I take vitamin supplements, I won't live longer? Well, that's sort of been the thing that I've talked about on and off for years. And uh, whether or not we should take vitamin supplements or not. So first of all, let's remove people who have a vitamin deficiency proven. You know, in other words, they have vitamin B12 deficiency because they have something called pernicious anemia mm-hmm. and they've got to take injections. It's not, we're not talking about those people. We're talking about a healthy 50-year-old and above people. Does it actually improve longevity? Now, if we look at a study, the study comes from something called the NHANES study. And the NHANES study is a national study looking at how people eat, whether or not they exercise and so on. This information about the NHANES study published in the Annals of Internal Medicine is a very important study. So they looked at 24-hour food questionnaire and supplement questionnaire on a number of adults, about 28, roughly 28,000 mm-hmm. adults, to see whether or not supplements made a difference. Now, in the particular study, about half the participants took supplements. Okay. Mm-hmm. People who take supplements, by the way, are much more likely to be educated, much more likely to have uh, not have blue-collar jobs but have white-collar jobs. They're much more likely to be physically active. They're also much more likely to have a healthier diet. Mm-hmm. So in other words, mm-hmm. you're now going with people who actually are doing things to improve their longevity. Yeah. So. Separate those out from those who take the supplements and those who don't take the supplements. And what they found was that the supplements did not do anything. That getting vitamins from food 
did do something. They found that people who drank, who basically rather ate enough food that had vitamin K, fruits and vegetables that had vitamin K and magnesium had a, and potassium, had a lower risk of cardiovascular death. And people who actually had too much calcium supplements had a higher risk of, mm-hmm. of accidental, of, of rather, of uh, cardiovascular well, death. Well, help me out here. I take uh, vitamin D, and that's a good thing, right? Well, vitamin D, I think the jury is still out. I take it in the wintertime because I don't get outside. Mm -hmm. So I take vitamin D. But I have given up my multivitamins. I used to take a multivitamin every day with zinc. I gave it up years ago. I take a huge vitamin C pill. Uh, Vitamin C pill. Why do you do that? Because I think it makes me healthier. Well, it doesn't make you healthier. (laughs) I don't know if it really does. So you're a follower of Linus I like swallowing it because I feel I'm accomplishing something. See, you're accomplishing (laughs) something. No, you should get your vitamin C from fruits and vegetables. This study has shown again that we do need vitamins and minerals, but we have to get them from Mother Nature. We have to get them from food. That when you buy a supplement, you are buying an industrialized product that is manufactured in an industry somewhere here or in China or abroad. Get your vitamins from food, folks. It pays and it tastes better. 1-800-462-7413, our number. That's 800-462-7413. Now, Zorba, let's see if we can help a listener in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Hi. Hi. What's up? So my question is, for about 20 years, I've been having widespread pain and muscle weakness. Mm-hmm. And each time I go to the doctor, it seems like they focus on one issue and not the entire uh-huh. of the issue. And so I've been on Lyrica and had physical therapy for my back and nothing mm-hmm. really helped. Uh, so did they give you a diagnosis like fibromyalgia, which is often widespread pain? They did. They did mm-hmm. some autoimmune disease tests mm-hmm. and all okay. of them came back uh-huh. negative. Okay. I do have lupus that runs in my family, but that was negative. And so they, she, the doctor just said when they can't find an issue... Uh, reason, then they just lump it into fibromyalgia. Yeah, they do. I mean, that's basically is it's a diagnosis made by a committee, not made by a blood test. So people with fibromyalgia tend to have tender points in different areas. What are you doing from an alternative medicine point of view? You're doing acupuncture, massage therapy, cupping, anything that you've done? Um, I do massage. Um, mm-hmm. I do um, like prayer meditation. Uh-huh. Okay. So mindfulness meditation can make a difference. Uh, what happened with the Lyrica? Lyrica can be a really good drug. Uh, did that help at all? Well, I took it for three years. I thought it was helping, uh-huh. but I've been off of it for three years, uh-huh. and I feel the same. Uh-huh. When you were on it, did you have less pain? I mean, why'd you go off of it? Was it the expense or that you didn't think it was doing anything? No, I was just, like, steadily gaining weight. I uh-huh. do have weight issues. Uh-huh. I was trying to do things, uh-huh. and... I really would like it to be something natural. And I was still in pain. I had days where you're I was still, still in pain. Yeah. And Lyrica can be associated with weight gain. It's one of the one of the side effects. Have you ever been on an antidepressant, a tricyclic antidepressant, uh, you know, drug like nortriptyline and amitriptyline? Or have you ever been on duloxetine, which is called an SNRI? It's another type of an antidepressant. Both of these can be used for chronic pain. No, I was on Lexapro for Mm -hmm. four years, Uh but I didn't see a a change in it. And Lexapro wouldn't do it. There's another, it's another group of pills. Venlafaxine is one of the pills. Duloxetine is another pill. And they're called SNRIs, which are different from SSRIs. And for some people, they can help, they can help with pain. Um, one of the one of the things people with chronic pain we don't have some good answers for that you know we know opioids were not a good answer you know we we can see what the problems are for them we know that as i said the the two antidepressants i mentioned duloxetine uh, and venlafaxine can sometimes help with chronic pain we know massage therapy can help we know that regular exercise can make a difference of some sort um what have you done in the last week in terms of exercise Mostly I just walk. Mm -hmm. Do you ever swim? Yes. 
Because sometimes swimming can make can help with chronic pain. There's something about swimming and moving all the muscles and being buoyant can make a difference. And what's very useful in a lot of gyms is to actually do swim aerobics where they're exercise that you do in the pool because basically, and if you have weight issues, it basically makes you lighter and there are things that you can do in water because you're buoyant that you can't do without water. Um, and that would be extremely useful to look at because nothing, if you have chronic pain and you've had it for a decade, nothing is going to get rid of your pain forever. You're going to have good days and bad days. And the question is, either by using drugs uh, like antidepressants, will you have more good days? And by exercising, like swimming and doing other things, will you also have more good days? And then realize some days you're just going to feel, you're not going to feel good at all. You know, you're, you're, you're not going to feel good at all. But, but it sounds like swimming and trying a, a, a different drug like duloxetine or, uh, or a tricyclic antidepressant might be useful for you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. We really appreciate the call at 800-462-7413. You know, um, uh, acupuncture, we thought acupuncture would be really good for fibromyalgia, but unfortunately the studies with acupuncture and then sham acupuncture just have never borne it out, and it's a very difficult problem. And like the woman said, if you have chronic pain in different places, we lump it into fibromyalgia because, frankly, we don't know really what it is and we don't know how to deal with it medically. Okay, Zorba, time now for our medical MythBuster segment. This Email came to us from a listener named Rose. She writes, Dr. Zorba, about a year ago, my friend and I both ate pork tacos at a local restaurant. We both went home to suffer from vomiting and diarrhea for two entire days. Not fun. (laughs) A couple questions. Is there any potentially long-term damage we may have suffered? And are there any complications that could arise in the future from this? I once heard from a person that his food poisoning experience was the reason he had serious stomach issues years after the occurrence. Is this real or just a myth? Well, first of all, it's neither real nor a myth. <laughs> in other words, <laughs> I guess it kind of fits within there. There's some things where you can have a serious intestinal infection, such as amoebic dysentery, and you can have problems on and off for the rest of your life. There can be issues. Mm-hmm. You can have food poisoning where you actually get a parasite, and that can produce significant problems. So at one end, you do have the fact there can be permanent damage. At the other end, you have the fact that food poisoning, and it sounds like they had food poisoning, is a momentary acute event, and no different than a sore throat or a cold in that it doesn't leave any lasting effects. So they got sick for two days. Uh, you know, it's pretty likely the sickness was, you know, was temporally involved with what they ate. So it may have been indeed from the restaurant. We know that food poisoning is really common both at home and in restaurants. Uh, and for the most part, 99.9% of the time, there is no permanent damage at all. Mm-hmm. It's just something that comes and goes. It's an acute illness. And so I would say it's a myth that she is going to have permanent damage. But it's not a myth that there are some very rare circumstances where people do have permanent damage. Really smart. What does temporally mean? At the same time. So in other words, when you do something, you know, you went to a restaurant and then you started getting sick and vomiting, you blame it on the restaurant. What if it was the food that you ate that morning at home? You don't blame it on that. And especially if it's a new restaurant or often if it's, you know, a restaurant that is serving exotic food. But if you go to McDonald's and you go home and you vomit, you say, oh, I got a food, I got the flu bug. Well, because, you know, McDonald's is about as healthy as you can go to because they use very strict hygienic precautions. So when we see things during the same time, we often look at cause and effect may not be there. Got it. Have a potential myth for Zorba. We just might read it on the air, and then you'll be the taco the town. (laughs) Just post it to our Facebook page or send an email at Zorba at WPR.org. Now, Zorba, before we head out, we love it when our listeners post on our Facebook page. Time again for Facebook Feedback. Okay, Zorba, on the official Zorba Pastor on Your Health Facebook page, you recently posted an interview you did for Wisconsin Public Radio talking about 
cannibal sandwiches. Yes, and I have to tell you something. I had more hits on the cannibal sandwiches Facebook page than I have of anything. They blew it out of the water. They blew it out of the water. Almost 10,000 people had looked at this thing with cannibal sandwiches. Well, first, first, this listener says, of those not in the know, can you explain again what a cannibal sandwich is? Basically, it's eating ground beef with onions. Raw. A little, raw. That's right. I'm sorry. Sorry, raw on a slice of bread. That's what it is. However, however, as we discussed, it's best done by a butcher who's washed his equipment and it's not ground beef that you buy in the grocery store, which often comes from different sources. You get a piece of steak and then you ground it. You know. Okay. So – And of course, course I, I mentioned that I happen to like cannibal sandwiches. Oh. So. Okay. So of course our wonderful listeners responded to the piece with all kinds of reactions Here's a small sampling. First, Patty from Kettle Falls, Washington wrote, I love raw meat. No one really understands until they try it. (laughs) And Phil in Sockville, Wisconsin says, They were a tradition on Christmas Eve, followed by church farts on Christmas Day. Okay, Zora, but Dawn shared this. In Concordia, Missouri, a German settled town, they call it raw hack and serve it with crackers. It's served at the yearly festival and is popular. And Kathy in De Pere, Wisconsin wrote, Mom used to serve that at our Christmas parties. We trusted the butcher at the store and he was very meticulous. I wouldn't try that now. Okay, Zorba. Here are a few more. (laughs) Melissa in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania admits, I thought this was for April Fool's. (laughs) And Carol Ann brings us some brutal logic to the conversation with the comment, cannibal sandwiches? I'm not a cow. (laughs) And finally, Sandra from the Smiling Pelican Bake Shop in Maiden Rock, Wisconsin, shares her story. As a young child, I remember making myself a sandwich from the buffet at my grandparents' house. After a bite, I was horrified to find it was raw and mystified that everyone was eating it. I tried to nonchalantly return my portion to the buffet, but I was busted and required to sit there until I cleaned my plate. Last time I fell for that. (laughs) It was a good piece. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for all the Facebook comments. And, of course, if you have a beef with something you heard on the show, you can always send us an email at Zorba at WPR.org or through Facebook. We'll see you next week, Zorba. Stay well, Tom. If you missed anything during the show or want to download our show podcast, visit us on the web at ZorbaPastor.org or through Facebook. (laughs) Don't forget you can call us anytime at 800-462-7413. Zorba Pastor on Your Health is a production of Wisconsin Public Radio. It's not intended as a medical diagnosis, so please do check with your doc. Our executive producer is Carl Christensen. Our technical director is Brad Kohlberg. Our theme music is by Leo and Ben Sidron. For Zorba Pastor, I'm Tom Clark, asking you to join us on the next Zorba Pastor on Your Health. For more information on Dr. Zorba Pastor and to listen to current or past episodes, go to ZorbaPastor.org. There you can subscribe to the weekly podcast and you will find the show archive, Zorba's favorite recipes, his healthy living articles, and other helpful tips heard on the show. That's ZorbaPastor.org.